What is transgression is not sex. No, no, listen to me. I know probably say it. Falling in love is a problem. I don't have to be helpful. Wait, why do I have to be helpful? Look at our priceless art collection and I think, what a great country. I'm good for it. Hello and welcome to this episode of Humidum, coming to you from a rainy Sydney night. This week, technical difficulties abound, but we've managed to scrape together an episode for you. Jenny Saunter's spew review will look at Deadpool, and we've dug up some outtakes from our first episode of What the Fuck Am I Looking At? And Vanaxis and I have conducted a special report into the ATO building controversy on Gosford's waterfront. Any good news today, political heavyweight, and by heavyweight I'm not talking about his influence, George Christensen was today horrified that an expert found no problem with the Safe Schools program. He is, of course, a member of the coalition for whom expert opinion carries less weight than a broken toilet. And in a poll conducted exclusively by me on Twitter, we've discovered that Erica Betts is, in fact, that dinosaur that swims in the ocean. More facts waiting for you in this episode of Humidum. Enjoy. I never explain anything. I You're doubt not many of my colleagues spend a lot of time yeah. with you, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me live now from, well, <laughs> live recorded from Victoria Park next to the University of Sydney is alumni. Oh, yes. Alumnus. Double alumni? I don't know. Alum, Alum? of the University of Sydney, Jenny Sonto. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me in this um, dank pit of dirt. <laughs> I actually was really worried earlier that I was going to get bitten by a green ant. I think I can feel one of Mandy's now. But... I can feel one crawling on my ass. It's... Yeah, that's just normal though. Well, well, just ride it out. I figure if I don't move, they won't sense that I'm not a tree. That's it. Now, how has Sydney University changed since you were a student here? Well, if possible, the elitism has grown now, which is a pretty fantastic idea to entertain because it was already pretty strong when I got here in uh, 2005 from Gosford. There's lots more glass buildings. Yeah. Uh, There's a few more uh, kind of colonnades and stairs, a few more trendy cafes popping up everywhere. Mm. And... uh, People smell their own farts a lot more than they used to, mm-hmm. which is concerning. Do you think this is a Spence thing or? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess Spence is, when I was here was a name to just rail against. Like when you walked yeah. down the street in protest of VSU and ended up yelling at people in suits <laughs> on George Street just yeah. because. So I once, I don't know, had some sort of protest outside of Michael Spence's office and wrote, fuck you, Spence, with chalk on the sandstone. And, uh, you know, sinfully stood on the grass of the quad, which I'm pretty sure almost got me expelled or, you know, with some kind of academic black mark. So, yeah, I do blame Michael Spence entirely. I think there's a culture in universities for people to blame the VC Mm. no matter what. Because, I mean, my experience with Spence, and I've only been a student here for a year now, Mm. has been quite positive. Yeah. Having said that, there are a lot of people who savagely disagree, but I think the university, or at least the executive of the university, is always the great enemy. Well, perhaps, but I mean, I think when I, as I said, I came here on my first year in 2005, and unionism was compulsory. Yeah. And I'm a unionist, so obviously I didn't mind, and I saw a lot of the benefits to paying those fees, or my mum paying those fees. Mm. And then the following year was when uh, VSU came in. And as I said, uh, we went to rallies. I went with Curtis and David and blah, 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 and Travis down in the city. And they were huge. They were huge rallies. And I really felt part of something as abstract as that kind of is from someone who's not from Sydney. But 
I felt like there was a movement that was going to be taken note of. And it was to a certain extent, but then it was, you know, put down. And, and now, yeah, I, I feel like when I was here at the end of my arts degree that a lot of the campus activity had died down. And VSU is happening at the height of the Howard government's mm. sort of, well, the culture wars for a start, which mm. was sort of manifesting in that whole black armband battle about the fabrication of Australian history that mm-hmm. Blaney and uh, Keith Windshuttle was sort of putting this line about Australia not attacking Aborigines and that was translating into classrooms, um, flagpoles in schools programs and at the same time Howard's going after protesters leading up to the G20. Mm. David Marr wrote a quarterly essay, His Master's Voice, which was the corruption of public debate under John Howard. So VSU I think was just an, another aspect of that. Fast forward 10 years now, God you've been at Sydney oh my God. Time. <laughs> Fast forward a decade yeah. and we noticed a poster today that's been stuck to the new law building for the Insipid campaign, an SRC takeoff of Sydney's inspired leadership campaign mm. featuring Tony Abbott. And it says... As a gross youngster, by the way. As a gross, wall-punching, misogynist youngster. Yeah. I will make it illegal for people to report the sexual abuse of refugees. Yeah. So I guess because they're talking about leadership and I guess the now pri- or the ex-Prime Minister of Australia for a blip there was a leader at Sydney Uni. And is leadership from Sydney Uni necessarily a good thing? Just because you come from Sydney Uni, just because you name drop Sydney Uni like it's some kind of important fact in your life, other than that, I don't know, your parents could afford to send you here if you're an international student, or <laughs> you were such a nerd that you actually studied for the fucking HSC. Or you're Tony Abbott. And you That's right. Of... Like, well, how, was he here under the, um, was he a bit later than the free higher education policies of the Labor Party? I can't remember. I don't think his degree would have been free. I don't think his was. Okay. Maybe it was, because I know Pine had a bit more. I hate him. (laughs) (laughs) Now, your spew review for today, what movie are you looking at? Well, I have a look at Deadpool this week to try and stay somewhat topical, as opposed to just getting drunk and yelling at the TV like last time. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. I'm obviously still going to do in the future. (laughs) Well, we'll cut to your review of Deadpool now. Finally, we can all breathe a sigh of relief because this is the type of comic book movie that I want to see. Rude, offensive, brutal and funny. While the total animal in me does enjoy seeing men like Chris Hemsworth in tights smashing things, I can really only watch so much of it. I am so bored of the snorefest that is the superhero team overcomes their differences to destroy absurd alien central thing formula that I am almost sick every time I step into the cinema. No one cares about Avengers number 74, the adventures of Sam Jackson's eye patch, and don't even get me started on Captain America, a movie so terrible that it managed to simultaneously make Hugo Weaving look like a bad actor and Chris Evans look ugly. If we're honest, Iron Man is our favourite. And why? Because Robert Downey Jr. slash Tony Stark is a brash asshole, and we all want to be like him. Iron Man doesn't quite fit the age-old cliche of a do-gooder paragon of virtue which, as members of the human race, we all know is complete bullshit. We are attracted to the elements of the anti-hero in him. He deals weapons, fucks a lot of hot women, is vehemently egotistical, and doesn't play nice with others. Sure, he eventually learns from some of these mistakes, but he's still a huge dick about it, and we love it. Deadpool takes this concept of the anti-hero, 
makes its smoke crack, sets itself on fire and dance the Macarena. It is a story of Wade Wilson, played fantastically by the quick quipping sexual Adonis Ryan Reynolds, an ex-Black Ops badass who is now a self-professed bad guy, protecting the little guy from even badder guys. His mercenary past has left him pretty fucked up, as it should. And something which I might add is barely touched on in other superhero narratives. And he spends most of his days drinking with his bartending buddy who constantly bets on Wilson to die in the bar's dead pool. Get it? It is here that Wilson meets his hot escort girlfriend Vanessa, who is just as damaged as him, and is the one instance where the film does stick to the boy meets girl convention of most films. However, as Wilson accurately narrates, life is filled with brief commercial-like breaks of happiness, and now back to our regular programming. We discover our anti-hero has cancer of the everywhere. Naturally, a predatory Agent Smith-esque character emerges to offer Wilson salvation, a cancer-free existence with superpowers, LOL jokes in Shoe Madness. The most striking element of the film is its ability to break the fourth wall and interact with the audience in an intelligent and meaningful way. Wilson acts as a film's narrator who looks directly at the camera and addresses the audience, even wiping gum off the camera lens. While this technique is employed to pull the viewer in and make them feel like part of the story, it also tells us that finally this is a comic book movie that doesn't take itself too seriously. Finally, this is a film that treats the brutal death, destruction and general public mayhem that always results from the usual superhero battles exactly as it should be, with absurdity. To treat it any other way is just unbelievable. To think that there is no real repercussions for the Avengers team when they level yet another city is just dumb. And Deadpool takes the piss out of this tired old trope. I need my art to truly imitate life, for it to be real, even in stories such as Deadpool which exist in the unreal. But even in this unreality, the film still manages to bring real characters to the table. Real characters that are broken by their shitty past, riddled with self-doubt and self-loathing, but still manage to struggle through life with the help of sarcasm, a black self-deprecating sense of humour, and the messy camaraderie of human relationships. And all without the droll whining of Captain Pants and the incredible douchebag. The breaking of the fourth wall is also particularly effective for Australian audiences who love a good piss take which is basically the point of the whole film. Shade is thrown in a plethora of directions, mainly at Hugh Jackman, the whole X-Men franchise, and Fox Studios for their previously shitty representation of Deadpool. Also, Rosie O'Donnell, The Green Lantern, Limp Biscuit, the film's own producers, cast and director, and even Ryan Reynolds' own questionable acting career. Other notable mentions should go to the awesomely nostalgic soundtrack, which made me shamefully remember that I knew all of the words to Salt and Pepper's Shoe. Composed by Junkie XL, aka Tom Holkenborg, who has also worked on such amazing soundtracks as The Dark Knight Rises, 300 Rise of an Empire, and Mad Max Fury Road, the soundtrack successfully embodies the satirical nature of the film by contrasting its brutally violent images with the light-hearted sounds of 80s romance pop and classic 90s R&B. A lot of Wham! and George Michael references also serve to add appeal for older audiences who were disgusted with themselves for sharing a cinema with obnoxious 12-year-olds and the awful parents who took them to see an R-rated film. Overall, I think the film's ability to flip comic book convention on its head, then fuck the corpse, is precisely what makes it so appealing to such a wide audience. That and also seeing Ryan Reynolds' bum on the big screen, which can never be a bad thing. I give it seven out of a possible eight zesty garlic wraps. <laughs> Every episode of Humidorm that we record tends to generate a huge amount of audio because we ramble for such a long period of time and cutting it back to half hour is a really difficult process. But we do end up with some gem conversations that we can recycle for later. And the conversation you're about to hear was from the very first episode of Humidorm, where Georgina McNeil and I were discussing first Guernica, and then we moved on to the subject of Damien Hurst's Crystal Skull. Have a listen.
Yeah, so what I was going to say was if you consider what the painting Guernica tells us about the history and the people and the fucking lives of people between the world wars, think about, you know, the gravity that Guernica sort of conveys. What do works such as Damien Hirst's um, Diamond Skull, which is called For the Love of God. I am familiar with the Diamond Skull, actually, because yeah. it rang a bell when you mentioned it before the it's show. It's fucking excellent. Mm. I'm obsessed with it. So, right, so what do what do contemporary artists and their works say about us? So, you know, the paintings that I looked at in my thesis were painted 500 years ago. Mm. And in some cases, I was lucky enough to see some of the preparatory drawings um, for some of those works. And I, I was very much struck by the fact that I was looking at this, um, you know, piece of paper that had been in the hands of Leonardo da Vinci. You know, mm-hmm. the, the page still bore the marks, it bore the indentations, you know, the pencil marks of Leonardo's hand. So 500 years later... This, you know, physical object can transmit the passage of, you know, one of the greatest minds that the earth has ever seen, etc. So, I mean, that's fucking amazing. So what is the crystal skull going to say to people 500 years in the future? And this is where I diverge um, quite a long way from, I think, a lot of casual art observers. So I actually love the young British artists. I love Tracy Emin. I'm fucking obsessed with her. I love Damien Hirst. I love the Piss Christ. I'm not super sold on Grayson Perry just because I think that his kind of cross-dressing is quite problematic. But Damien Hirst, he's the architect of his works of art, but he's not the craftsman. He can paint. He's actually quite a good painter. Um, He just doesn't. Because that's not where the value of his um, of his toil lies. So, the work of Damien Hirst as an artist lies in, I think, the life that his works take on after they leave the studio. And this is where we get to such an interesting area of of art theory rather than art history, which is where you look at the artwork as an object and you sort of you start to layer it. You know, like. There is a shell outside the crystal skull, which is how much the skull is worth. And then there is a shell which is media criticism. And then there is a shell which is backlash. And, you know, the object itself, the physical object, becomes almost unimportant underneath Mm. all of those layers of meaning. The skull is worth millions and millions of dollars because it's fucking diamonds. But the interesting thing is I think of... uh one of his previous big works, which is The Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living, which is a large shark. Mm, Which I've written an article about because I'm fucking obsessed with it. Well, so uh, Sajid Das, economist, Mm. uh, wrote the book Extreme Money, and he actually takes... It's an amazing book, and he actually takes that artwork as the sort of the starting point for his narrative yeah, right. about what happened in the it's lead up to the global financial crisis so because it was commissioned or or whatever or bought by an incredibly wealthy financial trader who was dealing with derivatives yeah, right. and and these sort of unstable um it wasn't commissioned by him it goes through a lot of hands that's the other thing which is very interesting so between damien hurst and the eventual buyer yeah who may have you know fucking zero appreciation of art or even care what the fuck they've bought I think so, he just wanted a shark in a box. 
You know what's interesting about the shark actually is that it's decaying, so it wasn't preserved properly. No, and so apparently what they did is went fabulous and I revisited the du- shark because apparently yes, the, uh, the original shark decayed so much that the water became that, clouded and they had to replace it with a new shark. I just think that's so fascinating. You know, like the I, I'm I'm obsessed. It's with, almost art imitates death. Yeah, it, it and you know Damien Hirst can't control that necessarily. I mean, he had nothing to do with the shark physically. He didn't catch it. He didn't preserve it. He didn't fucking ship it. He didn't touch it. Mm. You know, so he's, he's again, just this architect sort of figure. Um, so, he, you know, he didn't do a shitty job on the preserving on purpose. But what the artwork becomes in time becomes another layer of meaning on top of the shark. So I, I just, you know, I, I know a lot of people are not fans of contemporary art. Um, and particularly those like high, you know, high level conceptual artists. I'm a massive fan. And mixed with alcohol, we turn into raging brutes, distorting reality. This week, Humidum has conducted a special investigation into the current furor over the ATO office on Gosford Waterfront. The history of the issue goes back to the 2013 election campaign when Tony Abbott and Lucy Wicks promised to bring 300 jobs to Gosford. Their plan was to bring a significant government office. Once in office, then incompetent treasurer Joe Hockey began the planned relocation of jobs from other regions in Australia to Gosford by constructing a new office for the Australian tax office. The site that was selected in prime, uh, is prime real estate with uninterrupted views of Brisbane Water, located on the old Gosford Public School site. This school was demolished in 2015 as part of a long-term development strategy for the city, first articulated in the Gosford Master Plan. The Gosford Master Plan identified five precincts for revitalising the city, the first of which was the waterfront. The Landings, which has faced ongoing resistance from conservatives and environmentally concerned community groups who apparently don't give a shit about Gosford's endemic civic decay. Area A of the school site was sold to the Commonwealth for Development, an announcement made by Lucy Wicks and Joe Hockey in 2015. Initial reaction to the design of the building ranged from loathing to urban horror, the architecture being a neo-brutalist blight on the cityscape, as though someone had reconstructed the rundown Froggy's building out of the rubble from the old school. They've since redesigned it to something vaguely less offensive, though the public utility of the building and the lack of commercial and attractive retail and entertainment space is still a concern. Part of the weirdness of the choice of an ATO office, however, has been the expense involved in doing so, particularly when community demand for knowledge, cultural and digital industry support has been quite loud. All up, the ATO office is projected to cost the Commonwealth $20.8 million, money that could surely have been effectively deployed in promoting local startups or some other sort of economic activity. While the local member Lucy Wicks has talked up her commitment to growing the economy of the region, she's been reluctant to support activation of, for example, a full gigabit NBN connection to the city, infrastructure that is already in place and can be activated at no extra cost. The other stupidity is the sheer waste of capital involved in the project, which isn't set for completion until 2017, breach of the promise made by Abbott, surprise, surprise, that it will be completed by 2017. Secondly, the ATO currently has an excess of office space as cuts force it to reduce its workforce by 4,500 positions. Last year, it was penalised $1.3 million by the Department of Finance for having empty space, and it's now paying to build a whole new office for another 500 to 600 workers. Lucy Weeks recently described the benefits of this project as coffee shop economics, the notion that another 500 workers means another 500 coffees every day in Gosford, as though employees of the ATO were not already familiar with the infinitely more affordable Nespresso option. Uh, Lucy Hockey and Scott Morrison have all alluded to the modelling done on this 
ATO office. So I asked her over Twitter last week where I could find it. She said it had been done by the Regional Development Australia Central Coast branch and would be happy to send it to me. As yet, I'm still waiting. However, I did some searching, including looking at the tax officer's submission to the Senate Standing Committee on Public Works, which treats value to the community in two sentences and refers the committee to media releases from the Treasurer, which refer to this phantom modelling. I dug through RDACC's economic indicators and found some references to modelling that was done by economy.id for Gosford Council, but I still can't find the modelling itself, the assumptions it's based on, or the data that was built into the model. And all of this ignores the fact that the government has not conducted a full cost-benefit analysis of this project. What we're seeing played in real time in Gosford is an example of the rationality of power, the way political actors can use their power to make a decision and then rationalise it after the fact. There's been very little, if any, community consultation on this project. The fact that a decision was made without a clear need, a knee-jerk policy to try and buy votes, and running completely against the Liberal Party's supposed fiscal prudence is clearly an indicator of a total load of bullshit. We are here now from Vanaxis, political correspondent. What's your take on this issue? Well, look, it's very interesting because, of course, we're dealing with a party that is all meant to be for business, for sound development, for the bottom line. And uh, and that's why, of course, they have fired over 4,000 ATO workers. And then there's about 2,000 positions, positions unfilled. And roughly per dollar of wages they spend on those ATO offices, they bring in 2 to $3 in lost tax revenue. So it's a big win. <laughs> Look, I mean, the main problem is, is that we have the ATO office in Newcastle is mostly empty. It's well understaffed. The work cover building in Gosford, which the state former state Labor government brought to Gosford, is mostly empty. So let's just take it on face value. Does decentralised pork barrelling of government departments ever work out? No, because essentially it always goes back to the major city or unless it has a purpose as a major regional hub, mm. it just won't, uh, there's no reason for it to be sustained. Like it is always going to be cut by a future government or it's going to be slowly wound down. Then we have the fact that Gosford already has quite a lot of empty commercial spaces already. And for start, I would think, what about the empty Centrelink call centre next to Peter Inn by the station? Yeah. I know it's not a super attractive building, but the federal government already owns it and yeah. it's already nearly empty. Do we need another building built? No, it's a waste of money. The fact that it is then being built by a developer who has long-term ties to the Liberal Party raises questions. The fact that the federal government won't even own the building, they're just getting it for a 10-year lease for $70 million, which if you look at commercial rents in Gosford, that's actually pretty dear. You know, yes, I understand it is prime waterfront tech, which, you know, brings in the question, why does a tax office need it? <laughs> uh, so it's definitely not value for money. The building itself is quite interesting because, it, as you mentioned, it, it was semi-neo-brutalist. I mean, as you say, though, that's not entirely true because it was brick, not raw concrete, which yes. would have made it stunning. <laughs> um, but it is, it is ugly. It is less ugly. However... Doma is a company that is more, they build hotels and they do up old hotels, bars, venues, like that is mainly their portfolio. Yeah. So why are they building an office block? And you look at this building and, and it's quite square and ugly and, you know, but it's got a little deck and, and then you realise that if you look at the plans, the supporting frame is on the inside third of the building. And so it would be very clear after those 10 years to renovate it and surround it with decks and have exposed arches instead. 
So is this government pork barreling, which will bring in allegedly 300 jobs, which I don't ever believe that anyone from the tax offices will ever sit in that building, just so a former Liberal Party donor can end up with prime real estate property that they can renovate for almost no money and turn into uh, probably a decent venue. Because Malcolm Turnbull denied for a while that there was correspondence going between the Commonwealth and the New South Wales government and then retracted that under pressure from the Senate committee, retracted that and admitted that they had had correspondence regarding that package of land. They're getting it very, very cheap. Oh, that package. And because remember that there was a lot of controversy about moving the school sites. Now, I knew teachers that were at Gosford Primary. They were very happy to get new facilities because their facilities were run down and were awful. And so they they were happy to move. And everyone was led to believe that the Department of Education was going to sell that parcel of land and put in good investment. Mm. Now, those of us that aren't stupid and don't fall for those sort of Tory tricks knew that they would not sell the land and invest it in public service because... That is just not their MO. (laughs) Um, But I at least thought they would make some money on it and add it to the surplus. Yeah. And um, and they sold it for undervalue. And I, yes, okay, I understand that DOMA has never contributed money to the state, to the New South Wales State Division. But they've been quite generous. They're like board of directors. The chairman have been quite generous with the ACT division of the Liberal Party. So while they haven't broken the law, Mm. it is dirty. It wouldn't pass the pub test, as Alan Jones would say. It's it's such an absurd thing. I mean, Gosford has almost nothing. So to say, we're going to put jobs in Gosford. I mean, I'm all for that. Mm. That's why I would be for, for example, if, you know, the council ever actually built a new library, Mm. if they built the telecommuting hub. You know, there's a whole range of projects that are on that are shovel ready for Gosford. Like, for example, if they built a performance center, that sort of thing would provide lasting employment, real jobs that that are actually exist that aren't from a that aren't from a government that is shutting down government departments left, right and centre. The Liberal Party's had a whole suite of options available to them on the Central Coast to increase investment, and I think particularly of the National Broadband Network, and those options have already been paid for. In fact, they've already been built, and instead they choose to do this fantastically expensive... The only person that is benefiting from this is the Doma Group. The only people that are benefiting is a developer who has donated... Not as the corporation, but the individuals, the chairman, they are the only people that will benefit from this deal. Gosford certainly won't because it's going to end up, for 10 years, it's going to end up with an almost empty building. I mean, if it ever actually gets built, because the stench is just getting more and more every day. Mm. And so, I mean, I find it fascinating. The federal government is outspending labour, not stimulating the economy to prevent a recession, not bringing in brand new quality services Mm. they are giving us an nbn which is both dearer and slower and being rolled out in a slower time with more increasing maintenance forever Mm. they are building things like this ato building instead of donating like putting money towards a telecommuting hub which stenches is just a waste of urban space Mm. ignores the needs of the city this uh, there is no cost-benefit analysis. I mean, I looked very hard today. There is almost nothing done. There's just uh, there's just media announcements. There's just media and, releases. 
you know, because they, they keep saying 600 jobs, 600 jobs. It isn't. It's 300 tax office jobs and then apparently 300 uh, from Something leased else. office space. Yeah. I mean, because they'll just be lining up to lease that building. Because it's not like Gosford hasn't already got so many empty buildings oh, to just, lease. It hasn't got so That's right. I mean, it's a chronic shortage of commercial uh, <laughs> lease space. And I will just, one further addendum, the best research I could get, and this, this tells you sort of everything you need to know, the Daily Telegraph has had the sort of community outrage, no numbers. The only paper that has had actual, looks like uh, journalism done on it, was from the Canberra Times, mm. and that's because the ACT feels the blow of cuts to the public service so mm. much. So whenever something is like, we're going to send, I mean, that, that they're usually Canberrans that are shipped half pay their moving costs and say, well, if you want the job, you need to move to Gosford. You know, so thank you to the Canberra Times and obviously big surprise that City Morning Herald was too busy writing rubbish and the Daily Telegraph was obviously just a news piece, a mouthpiece, sorry. Thank you, Vanaxis. And you. poorly written. We'll see you next next episode. It's radio. You don't actually see each other, you fuckwit. Well, that concludes this week's episode of Humidum. We'll see you in a fortnight. Take care of yourselves and each other. Flesh-eating zombies. Oh, my God, disgusting man! Demonic hill beasts. never-ending. It's just like the whole genus whole.